want to show an image, watercolor, from 1860. And if you see the two children with the cat of nine tails practicing for what they would do later in life as a game. And you can see the girl holding her doll, waiting to whip the other person. Hello, and welcome to Things, a global conversation presented by Old Salem Museum and Gardens and the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts. My name is Joel Cook, and I'm the education coordinator for Hidden Town at Old Salem Museums in Mesta. In each episode of Things, we aim to use objects to draw larger connections between people across historical, geographic, social, and political lines. Today's episode will discuss the deeper symbolism of two objects designed to subdue Black resistance, the Wachovia Whip and the Speculum Oris. We do want to acknowledge at this point that um, this is pretty heavy content. Um, it, it definitely has an effect on us as researchers and uh, we're aware that it also has an effect on um, people who might be watching this chat as well. Um, so we did want to take the time to acknowledge that, you know, people feel that they might need to take the time to step away from this or come back to it later. That's perfectly acceptable and we understand. Joining us for our conversation are Michael J. Bramwell, visiting guest curator at the Museum of Early Southern Decorative Arts, and Dr. John F. Sinsbach, professor of history at the University of Florida. For those of you joining us live, we will welcome your questions at the end of the program. Please type them into the chat located at the bottom of the screen. And we will answer them during our Q&A period. Our first speaker tonight will be Michael J. Bramwell. Michael J. Bramwell is a doctoral candidate, professional visual artist and educator born in the South Bronx and raised in Harlem. He holds a master's in fine arts from UNC Chapel Hill, a master of arts in special education from Columbia University, and a bachelor's degree in psychology and sociology from Oakwood University, a historically black Seventh-day Adventist institution of higher learning founded in Huntsville, Alabama in 1896. Michael's dissertation, Pottery by Any Means Necessary, Resistance in the Art of David Drake, explores African diasporic material culture in the antebellum South with emphasis on theology and anti-slavery resistance. Michael was awarded an Andrew W. Mellon Humanities for the Public Good Fellowship for his work at the Auckland Art, Auckland Art Museum and research grants from UNC's Center for the Study of the American South and the Center for African American Research to examine the spiritual implications of cultural practice in Black vernacular art. His work is published by Oxford University Press and included in a collection of cataloged essays accompanying the Souls Grown Deep William Arnett exhibit to be released this spring. Thank you so much for starting us off, Michael. Just as a reminder for anyone joining us live. Oh, thanks a lot, Joel. I appreciate it. If you have any special questions or, or specific questions that you have that pop up during Michael's presentation, um, we'll be happy to address those in just a minute. Remember to enter them in the chat and then we'll get to them in the Q&A period. Michael, we have the floor. Yes, good evening, everyone. Um, we're very happy to be here, and uh, I want to take a moment and thank uh, Old Salem and Mazda for the opportunity uh, to be in conversation tonight in this program with things. And I'm also very excited uh, to have a conversation with uh, Dr. Sinsbach uh, about this uh, important topic. Okay, so I would like to begin by acknowledging that the land on which we are gathered for this conversation was stolen from indigenous peoples and have borne witness to over 400 years of enslavement. 
torture and systematic mistreatment of African people and their descendants. Knowing and critically examining this history and how the collective we got here is vital for understanding our current reality, as well as functioning as an initial step in the process of healing the deep wounds of our shared history. We honor and respect a diverse indigenous and African people connected to this land on which we gather this evening. But I'd like to begin with a quote from Toni Morrison, because we're very much going to be in the past uh, dealing with these objects. So the past until you confront it, until you live through it, it keeps coming back in other forms. The shapes redesign themselves in other constellations until you get a chance to play it over again. And that's exactly what we're doing tonight. We're doing the work of playing over the past and we're gonna be doing it through objects that are going to tell us a history, uh, the history of actually mentalities, how people thought. Uh, and we're going to do that by looking at this concept of evil. Now evil, you might ask, what does this have to do with my object tonight or with Dr. Sinsbach's object. But as we progress, it will become clearer. So anyway, evil is divided into three categories. You have metaphysical evil or the lack of perfection inherent in any created world. And we're seeing a lot of that in our world today. And then you have natural evil or the suffering that comes from acts of nature, such as cancers and tornadoes. We're dealing with COVID right now. But there's another kind of evil that's central to our discussion tonight, and that's the deliberate willingness to inflict suffering. So my object that I chose um, to talk about is the Wachovia Whip. This is one of the objects that's in Mezza's collection. And one of my uh, tasks as one of the visiting guest curators is to begin to look at objects in a new way. We've had these objects for a while. I think this whip has been in Mez's collection, I'm not sure the exact amount of time, but for a while now. And we're trying to look at it in a new way and get new information out of it. And the one of the ways that I do that first and foremost is just a basic description of what we're looking at. We have an object that's highly crafted, made out of leather. This whip appeared in the Wachovia, North Carolina, which is now Winston-Salem, North Carolina, first half of the 19th century. It was used as a tool to torture enslaved people, to keep them productive, and to keep them from ever thinking about this thing. Now, unlike the whips that you see portrayed in the movies, uh, which is the bull whip, this whip was constructed differently. It's about 26 inches long, two and a half inches wide, and its widest point with a stiff handle covered with leather. Wood is underneath. The paddle portion of the whip has four designated holes per row with 15 rows in total. And there's an extra layer of leather which contains 13 rows of four holes, which was part 
done for a very specific reason. And it was this cue that got me to asking myself, why was it not designed as a regular bullwhip? Excuse me, Michael. Yes. I'm sorry to interrupt. Um, if you could stay a little bit closer to your mic, you're fading out just a little bit. Sure. Thank right. you. I appreciate that. Thank you. No problem. Can you hear me now? Yes, you're good to go. Wonderful. Okay, so the holes in the whip was what fascinated me and gave me a clue into what this object could tell me and provide a new interpretation for it. These holes were placed in the leather to prevent the lacerations and keloids that were produced by the bullwhip. If enslaved people were beaten, and Moravians didn't have any of that um, beating on them, reluctant they would be to use that whip. So, because you understand, what it indicated they is that created this. They were trying to get free. I call it, it a mythical to religious torture um, way to keep of introducing uh, enslaved people to their faith. Um, not so much. Well, I mean, like you said, they gave them a spiritual equality, but they couldn't take that to the bank, right? They were still whipped. They were still overworked. They were still tortured. They were still abused, all in the name of the Lord, okay? So this romanticized um, notion that, you know, they were interested in the spiritual well-being of the people they enslaved and whipped, um, has to be dispelled out of hand. Abraham's posterity that they should buy slaves and decree that those slaves would be a perpetual inheritance for their children. God recognized Abraham as the owner of slaves he had bought, commanding him to circumcise them. And Jesus ordained that whosoever dared to raise seditious doubts as to the benevolence of the institution of slavery should be cast out and scorned not only as a danger to the state, but destructive to the true nature of the gospel. God decreed by law that slavery be honored and obeyed, being his ordainment. Jesus himself established by law the relation of master and slave. A master must exercise without any weakness his authority over the slave. The master must not hesitate to punish him severely whipping him with the number of lashes commensurate to the offense. All this, dear brethren, is made known to us by the recorded language of the Bible. Slavery is therefore a divine institution. 
constitution ordered and sanctioned by God. Therefore, with all the authority invested in me by the church, I, Reverend Thornton Stringfellow of the state of Virginia, order you to honor slavery and not to discuss it on the basis of false moral premises. The bullwhip was different from the Wachovia paddle, but the intentions were the same. There was a cat of nine tails that was used also, but the same problem ensued because it left keloid scars. During the middle passage, if you look at the captain, he has a metal, a metal whip and he's getting ready to torture a female enslaved person. These are the keloids that come from the traditional bull whip and the reason why the Wachovia whip had to be developed to prevent this. I wanna show an image, watercolor from 1860. And if you see the two children with the cat of nine tails practicing for what they would do later in life as a game. And you can see the girl holding her doll, waiting to whip the other person also. What's of interest to me in this watercolor is that it was for children. It came in a children's book and it sort of inculcated the kinds of behavior that would be expected of them in order to maintain their enslaved people. But what is the most perverse thing for me is this little addition of this pail here. This pail was designed to catch the liquid that supposedly would come out after a severe beating. But we have to understand that this Wachovia whip is not alone by itself. It fits into a peculiar aesthetic. And so if we look at the definition of what decorative art really is, it's a highly designed uh, piece of material. It could be in iron, it could be in leather as we see with the Wachovia whip, but it fits into a broader system of objects that were designed to subdue a resistant spirit. So tonight, as we begin to look at some of these objects, remember these objects were made to subdue a turbulent spirit, a resistant spirit. And that's the subtext that's indicated in this object, on these objects. Here's a bell collar. This collar was placed around the neck. It was locked and it was put around the neck so that the enslaver could hear if the enslaved person was actually working or not, or were they running away? This is a, a brief image of it. But this is highly designed decorative art. And we generally don't think of decorative art when we look at these objects. This is it, photographic representation of the bell collar. 
Now this was a cotton screw. It was used to press down bales of cotton, but you can see how it's been adapted as a torture device. This is the bell, a different version of the bell collar. This is an image of William Chen, and this is the last one I'm gonna show. Now I have more slides, but I wanna give Professor uh, Sinsbach a chance to talk. This is William Chen, and this is a carte divisette that was uh, produced um, in the 19th century and used by abolitionists uh, to show the various torture devices. He has them all. He has the collar. And if you see on, on the left-hand side of the screen, he has, there's, there's a wooden whip, sort of like the Wachovia whip, not out of leather, but out of wood. And he has other instruments as well. Thank you for that presentation, Michael. Now for our second speaker, I'm gonna go ahead and introduce Dr. Sensbach. John received his BA in history from the University of Virginia in 1980. Um, he followed that up with a PhD in early American history from Duke University in 1991. He joined the University of Florida Department of History in 1998 after teaching at the College of William and Mary and the University of Southern Mississippi. He teaches the department's foundation graduate course in early American, early America, excuse me, as well as a recent graduate seminar on the Black Atlantic. And he also teaches undergraduate courses on the Atlantic slave trade, colonial America, and the American Revolution. Dr. Sensbach has been an NEH fellow at the National Humanities Center and an NEH postdoctoral fellow at the Omohundro Institute for Early American History and Culture. His most recent book, Rebecca's Revival, Creating Black Christianity in the Atlantic World. His most recent book is Rebecca's Revival, Creating Black Christianity in the Atlantic World. And he is also the author of A Separate Canaan, The Making of Afro-Moravian, The Afro-Moravian World in North Carolina from 1763 to 1840, which was inspired in part by his time working at Old Salem Museum and Gardens in the late 1980s and early 1990s. He is a co-author of The New History of, American, of the American South, forthcoming from the UNC Press, and is at work on several other projects, including a book about slavery and religion in early America, a study of the Caribbean author and former slave Mary Prince, and the West Indian native and father of Impressionism, the artist Camille Pizarro. Um, thank you so much for joining us tonight, Dr. Sinsbach. Um, I do want to say as a reminder to anyone joining us for this chat, if you have any specific questions, we'll be having a Q&A period after this conversation. Um, just drop your questions in the Q&A tab at the bottom of the screen and we will get to them whenever we get to that Q&A section. So again, thank you so much for joining us and you have the floor. Well, thanks very much for that introduction and I'd like to echo Michael's thanks to Old Salem and to Mesta and to Michael himself for inviting me to participate in this conversation. Uh, and uh, uh, it brings me back to, uh, as, as Joel mentioned, uh, I, I worked at Old Salem uh, many years ago uh, and, uh, and began to explore the, the contours of, of the book that I wrote about the experience of enslaved African-Americans in Old Salem, the Black Moravians. Uh, and it's been a project that's been near and dear to me for, for many years. In, in that regard, since, since I began studying uh, the history of Black Moravians in Old Salem, um, I've, I've long been fascinated by the fact that, that among the, the enslaved people that we know about in Old Salem, and of course the Moravians kept good records and they 
they left a lot of information about a lot of these people, and some of them uh, were able to leave their own memoirs or dictate their own memoirs. Among that group of people, we know of at least half a dozen uh, who were born in Africa and, and who were brought in captivity across the ocean on the transatlantic slave trade, on the so-called Middle Passage that, that Michael referred to just a moment ago, uh, the, the, you know, the, the forced journey from freedom to slavery, um, that you know, at least 12 million people were forced into. Uh, and, and I've been fascinated by the fact that at least half a dozen of those people ended up in, 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 uh, in Wachovia, in Old Salem, in Bethabara, and were walking around the streets. They were working, doing all kinds of things. They, many of them, several of them um, were, were baptized into the Moravian church. Um, one of them, Abraham, uh, left his memoir. It's an important document about the Atlantic slave trade. Uh, he is buried up in God's Acre in Old Salem. Uh, Christian, another enslaved African, was buried in the Bethabara graveyard. You can see his stone there. Anna, his wife, was buried uh, in, at the old graveyard in front of St. Philip's, and her stone was recovered by uh, Leland Ferguson's archaeological team several years ago. So they, these people were all over town, and they were part of the Moravian community, and they were part of the Part of the landscape there. So I've always been fascinated. What did it mean to have, have these people born in Africa, uh, sitting on church benches with people born in Saxony and in Brandenburg, uh, singing Moravian hymns and worshiping in the Moravian style? Who were these people? What were their experiences? Um, and, and as I said, you know, the Moravian records don't tell us everything, but they give us some clues that we can, that we can build on. And I, uh, so for me, the project has always been to try to try to reimagine who they were, what their lives were like um, in Africa, what their lives were like on the Middle Passage, and what their lives were like once they arrived in America and uh, and lived under conditions of enslavement in, in the Arabian community. Who who were they? What were the who were the the, the package of, of uh, uh, intellectual and ideological and spiritual uh, gifts that they brought with them under these forced conditions of duress. Um, we, can, we can begin to imagine that if we, if we start off with a, a picture of, of the slave trade itself, and that is this famous image that I'm sure many of you are, are familiar with. That's the so-called slave ship Brooks. This was an image produced during the late 18th century struggle in Great Britain against the Atlantic slave trade. And this shows what, what conditions were like on board the slave ship of people stacked, you know, essentially like literally like sardines in a can, you know, end to end, side by side, so they barely had room to turn around. And so this was the condition under which they, they were to travel for six weeks to two months across the ocean from Senegambia or from Ghana or from, from Angola uh, to the New World whether they ended up in Brazil or in Jamaica or Charleston or eventually ended up in Old Salem, this was a condition under which they would have traveled. Of course, the, the people that I'm talking about, the six or so people in Wachovia, um, they would have had a similar kind of story, some variation on the theme of having been 
kidnapped or captured or sold into slavery somehow uh, marched forcibly to the from probably from the interior of the country to to the coastline where they would have been forced to stay for a month or a couple of months in these so-called holding pens these castles or forts that European traders built on the west coast of Africa all the way from San Gambia all the way down to, to Congo this long stretch of African coastline was dotted with dozens and dozens of European trading forts and so the the people that we're talking about from, from Old Salem would have experienced some version of that. They would have been packed on board this slave ship and forced to endure these horrendous conditions of poor nutrition, of, of people getting sick and vomiting, uh, and uh, high mortality. At least 20% of the people crammed in, on board these ships would have, uh, were, are believed to have died during this, during this voyage. So, so this was an experience that obviously was indelibly implanted in the minds of, of, the, of the people who ended up in Old Salem. It's, it was an unforgettable thing that the trauma, the, the experience of living through this and surviving it uh, would have been, uh, they never would have forgotten that, never would have gotten over it. And the question would be, well, to what extent would they have been traumatized by it? And we expect that would have been fairly severe, but what else would they have taken away from that experience? What else would they have brought with them uh, to, to America? And in that regard, the, the, the image that I've chosen to talk about briefly tonight is, is called the Speculum Oris. Um, and the, the Speculum Oris was a device that it, it looks, it, 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 this, this image here on the left here, it looks like a uh, like maybe a doctor's forceps or something. It's a strange device. But the, every slave ship was equipped with these. And what they were used for was in the many instances where enslaved Africans on board the ships um, tried to commit suicide by, by self-starvation, by simply refusing food, that they would rather die by starvation rather than go to whatever fate awaited them um, on the other side of, of the ocean, that they tried to starve themselves, uh, believing that their spirits would travel or fly back to Africa. They would be reunited with their kin. To prevent that, doctors and the crew on board the slave ship would insert this speculum oris in their mouth to pry apart their jaws and to force feed them to prevent them from self-starvation. So this was seemingly a medical device that was used as a, as a torture device, as Michael says. One thing that I would, I would emphasize in this instance is that since all slave ships carry these, and there were thousands and thousands of slave ships throughout the course of the slave trade, the manufacture of these items, the speculum oris here, but also the shackles, the chains, the other kinds of devices that were used on board the slave ships. This was big business. The slave trade fueled the rise of Atlantic capitalism. English merchants, English manufacturers made fortunes producing these things. And so we are, we're now starting to learn much more about the relationship of 17th and 18th century capitalism and the production of huge fortunes through the slave trade and the basis upon which uh, an enormous amount of wealth was produced, as well as on the plantations themselves. 
So, um, but I'd like to go beyond that um, to, to think about um, try to imagine then what it would have been like to, to have survived this experience. We don't know, obviously, whether any of the people who ended up in Wachovia would have uh, been uh, tortured with this particular device, but they would have had shackles on them for sure. Um, we, we don't, so we don't know exactly, but we, we can imagine that it was a horrendous experience. Um, and the, the documents tell us how one by one they arrived through uh, either traveling through Charleston and going up through the back country, through the slave trade that way, or in some cases coming through Virginia, traveling overland through Southern Virginia and ending up being sold in, in, um, in, in Wachovia and in, in Old Salem. Um, and, and so the question then for them became, well, what, what, what do I make of my life now? What, what do I do with, with, you know, here I am in this strange place, people barking in the strange language that I don't understand, German. Um, one, one of these people, Abraham, uh, his story tells us that he was traded through the French Caribbean and then up to Charleston and then that way up to, to Wachovia. So he had, he had been through a great deal and his memoir tells us that he spoke a little bit of French. Um, but but um, rather than think of items like the speculum oris and the shackles as simply torture items to oppress enslaved Africans, we can also think of the Africans themselves as resisting the kinds of treatment and torture that they were subjected to, and that when they emerged from the slave ship, that their personalities were not necessarily entirely crushed, that they brought with them a whole slew of intellectual properties, of, of gifts that they had, of, of skills, of skills and crafts, production, metalworking, tanning, uh, 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 producing a production of cloth, all kinds of things that skills that they brought with them from Africa. And in many instances, they were able to put them to use wherever they ended up in America, in, in, this, in the South Carolina Low Country, in the Virginia Tidewater, in Old Salem, in the Caribbean, that their skills were highly prized and their intelligence and their spiritual gifts were highly prized as well. So, so we, what I'm trying to say is that in shifting the conversation away from the kinds of torture implements that were used against them, that they were able to survive somehow, almost miraculously, and apply the things that they brought with them to start forging new cultures in America, the cultures that, of course, form the basis of what we now call African-American culture, um, but, the, but the African imprint on Old Salem, as well as on many, many other communities in the Americas, was profound and deep, and that's what we must try to imagine and try to recreate and try to understand what it was that they went through. And as we go along, I can elaborate on some of those ideas, but those are the basic things that I would like to just introduce at this point. Thank you for that, John. Um, really appreciate that presentation. Um, we do want to acknowledge at this point that um, this is pretty heavy content. Um, it, it definitely has an effect on us as researchers, and uh, we're aware that it also has an effect on um, people who might be watching this chat as well. Um, so we did want to take the time to acknowledge that, you know, um, this 
will be a recorded um, presentation. If people feel that they might need to take the time to step away from this or come back to it later, that's perfectly acceptable and we understand. Um, moving forward, we're talking about our conversation, which is the place where I'm asking direct questions. So I guess my first question for you two is, while I've noticed that, you know, the objects that we're talking about as objects of torture um, definitely also have that double meaning of representing resistance. I've noticed, you know, Dr. Sinsbach, I read through um, that chapter, chapter three, just in a separate canon again, just to make sure I had the, the information together. And I did notice that, you know, there was also this concern as that resistance started to foment more and more that interactions between the congregate, the white congregants of Salem and these black congregants or black enslaved people that were in this area, um, they wanted that to stop because it represented, they thought there was the potential to quote, you know, lower the social order because of the interactions with these people who were demonstrating resistance. Um, and I, I guess the question is, when you think about the skills that they are presenting, the skills that they bring with them, even though they're being pushed out of this community as far as interactions outside of just their work interactions, do we feel that the other objects that they have, the other objects that they produce on a daily basis and during their enslavement, did those also represent forms of resistance just by being there? That's a good question. I guess it depends on how we define resistance. If, if by, <clears throat> by staying alive in um, communities and creating families and creating modes of communication with other enslaved people, passing on a legacy then to, to uh, either their children or someone else's children or teaching, then, then yes, uh, yes, they did. We know that Abraham, for example, worked in the, worked in the tannery. Um, and, you know, that the tannery was a stinky, smelly, dirty place, but somebody had to do that work. Um, Abraham was one of those people. And it was, it was skilled, highly skilled labor that they, they had to do. And so he was, he was involved in the skilled production of, of tanned leather goods. We know that Peter Oliver, although he was not himself born in Africa, was a, a highly skilled potter uh, who worked in the, the Pythabra and the Salem potting shops and, and was you know, widely reputed for his skill, uh, so much so that he was able to save money and, and, and buy himself uh, free. Um, so, so yeah, th I, I think so. Um, we, we also know from archeology span and other kinds of contexts that, that enslaved people made objects for themselves that were not necessarily intended for for the, the market or intended for white people to use, uh, clay objects um, that, that, that are often inscribed with, with uh, religious insignia, the crosses, which had a kind of Congolese symbolism to them, discovered in the, by, again, by Leland Ferguson in the South Carolina Low Country. So, so yeah, I think if, if we extend our vision beyond Old Salem to, to the wider context of the kinds of materials and objects that enslaved people, Africans, but also African-Americans uh, produce, then we can think of this as a, as a broadly resistant art form of not only self-expression and creativity, but also functional utility 
that they were able to use uh, for, for hunting, for cooking, for gathering, uh, for, for farming materials, all kinds of, of uses that they put these skills to use. And again, it's important to, to note that, that these skills were, uh, many of them brought with them from, from Africa and, and put to use. Uh, so the idea of enslaved Africans coming to America as a kind of a tabula rasa, having forgotten everything or knowing nothing and having to be educated in, in all the skills that white people knew is a misconception because they were highly skilled and, and, and brought intellectual uh, gifts with them and, and uh, a high degree of ingenuity and creativity as well. And all these things came to pass in the, the skilled work that they did with their hands and with their minds. I think without a doubt, um, I, I totally agree with everything you're saying. Um, part of my uh, curatorial work at MESDA is to develop a Southern pathway. Um, and what that means basically is figuring out how enslaved people use the means of their production in order to achieve freedom. And what I mean by that, we can even see that in the story of Peter Oliver, um, who purchases um, freedom. Um, you'll see more of that as the, um, the Southern Pathway script comes out. But these uh, enslaved artisans, even though they were forced to make these decorative art objects, they had a vision that transcended those objects. They were interested in freedom. And that freedom could come by escape, or that freedom could come by purchasing, or it could come through manumission. It, it came many ways. Um, but if you look at the, the enslaved potter, David Drake, um, one would say, okay, so he never really got free. In 1870, he, he got free eventually. But during his enslavement, he was doing all sorts of things with his pots that indicated that his vision was beyond just making pots. So what I'm trying to do with my means end uh, exhibition, means meaning that uh, people were using the, the work of their hands, but for other reasons beyond that. So I definitely agree with Dr. Sinsbach that um, people were attempting through um, their um, decorative arts to achieve freedom. And if you just look for a moment at many of the revolts that have happened, um, and you look at the profession of these people, it will be very informative. So for example, uh, if you look at Gabriel, uh, commonly known as Gabriel Prosser, but I think the formal name is Gabriel. He was a blacksmith, right? An enslaved literate blacksmith. If you look at Denmark Vesey, um, he was a carpenter. If you look at David Walker, um, he was a tailor. So there's something about the, the skill of artisans and the decorative art that have a confluence uh, with resistance. So to answer your question, yes. Appreciate that. It definitely provides, you know, a sense of agency. Whenever you talk about skilled labor versus 
not that well not necessarily skilled labor but when you're talking about artisans and how that work might influence their path to freedom um another thought that i've also had um when reading through is that you mentioned you mentioned freedom as being something that basically something that's focused on this life you know and i wonder whenever we're talking about the moravians especially the goal of the moravians when they arrived in north carolina and when they had this wachovia district was that it was supposed to be about purity um this this district about what about purity you know about the purity of this district about following their religious codes um and you could argue that the moravians who enslaved these these black moravians who did convert for whatever reason didn't actually hold up to that purity and I wonder what your perspectives are on how resistance, because from for me, I see that resistance is a, some sort of like holding up to that purity. And if they buy into this religion, which they may or may not, and there's a, there are a lot of reasons that people would have converted, um, enslaved people would have converted and become Moravian. But I wonder for those who did choose to buy into that, is that resistance an achievement of that purity and an achievement of that independence in another way, you know, um, because not everybody is going to be able to emancipate themselves, you know, and then there's, how do you, in their minds, how does, how do they quantify that, you know? Michael, you, you showed one of your slides was a, a picture of this guy, Wilson Chin, the guy with a, you know, with a collar on and, and the, you know, the sure. yeah, um, he actually, what is, what is not shown in that the caption of that picture is that he actually was a Methodist preacher. Mm -hmm. He uh, was apparently repeatedly punished for preaching, uh, you know, some version of a kind of a liberationist Christianity to enslave people on a plantation, I think in Louisiana. Um, mm -hmm. So, his example shows that there, there's long been this connection between religion and, and freedom and, and, you know, or some quest for liberation, uh, spiritual and, of course, uh, mm -hmm. secular and bodily liberation as well. And I think, it, it's a, it's, I think that theme is there as well among the Black Moravians, um, that you know, we, we, see, we see the acceptance of the Moravian faith by enslaved Africans and African-Americans uh, and, but, you know, but on what terms, on whose terms? I mean, in, on the Moravian church's terms or on their terms, you know, the Moravian church wanted them to be docile and subservient and, you know, and accepted them under ostensible conditions of spiritual equality within the church, but they were still enslaved. Um, we really have to wonder, well, what, what does this religion really mean to us? What, what what does what do the teachings of Christ actually symbolize? And you know, there's this long strain within African American Christianity of of uh, absorbing, adopting Christ as as the you know the the say the the suffering savior, the person whose whose sufferings are going to redeem the the damned and the forgotten people of the world, and and uh, adopted by by enslaved African Americans as as you know, spokesmen for their freedom, for their suffering, for their cause. And that, that theme can be traced, I think, subtly within the Black Moravian 
population. We see their efforts to create communities among themselves, separate from white Moravians. The, the records of the, of the so-called Negro congregation founded in 1822 show that very clearly, that they wanted to worship by themselves, even though they had to put up with the preachings of a white minister. Uh, their efforts to create community, uh, to create a kind of shell around themselves against the, against the, you know, the oppressions that they were feeling every day. So I think that theme is there, and it, you know, I think it illustrates again this strong connection between religion and um, and um, a sense of freedom from oppression, whether it can be seized in this lifetime or not. Well, I, you know, I, I would say just from my understanding sort of the kinesthetic imagination of how that Wachovia whip was used, right? Moravians didn't have any um, reluctance to use that whip. You understand? They created this, I call it a mythical religious um, way of introducing uh, enslaved people to their faith, um, not so much, well, I mean, like you said, they gave them a spiritual equality, but they couldn't take that to the bank, right? They were still whipped, they were still overworked, they were still tortured, they were still abused, all in the name of the Lord, okay? So this romanticized um, notion that, you know, they were interested in the spiritual well-being of the people they enslaved and whipped um, has to be dispelled out of hand. And this is part of, I think, the work that we're doing to sort of penetrate through the archive as it's, as it's told and begin to look at objects that can tell us a lot about the history of mentalities of, of what was really going on. And for me, um, as a curator looking at these objects, you see um, and much of what we know about enslaved people comes from the Levenslauf or what they call the memoir or the biography of, of, of even enslaved people after they die. So what we know about, a lot of what we know about Salem comes from the Moravian records, but we have to sort of, sort of put that archive aside for a minute and begin to see if there's other evidence that can inform or, or not that archive. And um, as a material culture scholar, um, objects can tell us a lot um, because if you look at it from a teleological point of view, we're concerned with how was that object used? Who was it used on? Who made it? Who sold it? Who audit. There's all of these implicated histories in here that sort of belie this, um, like I think you called it purity, this, this idea of, of religious purity. And really it's uh, in the final analysis, um, a form of Christian slavery. Thank you. Thank you for that. Um, I'm going to shift from my questions into some uh, questions in the Q and A um, at this point, but thank you both for those answers. That was that was deep. That was very powerful. Um, I do have two regarding um, 
the percentage of enslaved people, uh, we did have uh, someone asking what the percentage of enslaved people in Salem out of the total population was during the early 1800s. Um, and Dr. Sinsbach, do you want that one or? Well, I think uh, it depends on sort of which community that, you know, because the old Salem community uh, in theory did not allow individuals to own enslaved um, people. Um, but there, there were people, there were enslaved people working in old Salem, either on a, on a kind of a hired basis or, um, you know, some of them like Abraham and, and Peter Oliver worked in, worked in, uh, you know, various institutions. So, um, and, and there was a sort of a transient population that came through. They, people would be hired on a, on a uh, kind of a temporary basis and sometimes housed outside of town or in the tavern or something like that. Um, but then on the countryside, um, a lot of Moravians began buying slaves out there for farm work and other kinds of, uh, other kinds of things. And so I think probably by the early 1800s, maybe 10%, uh, that percentage, I think, increased gradually during the course of the first half of the 19th century. I think the census shows that there was something like 160 enslaved people living in the town of Salem on the eve of the Civil War, which I, I think was probably a good, you know, may, may have been 15% of the population or more, something like that. So uh, it was shifting, and, and, and I think more, the Moravians were in, much more engaged in slaveholding and slave management than we realize, and and that extended beyond mere numbers, but really a, a complete immersion in the system of slavery. And of course, that led to a complete identification with the Confederate cause uh, at the time of the Civil War. So, so yeah, there was uh, the, the enslaved population was highly visible, highly present, and numerically very significant within town of Salem, but also Wachovia more broadly. And, and with some follow-up questions, we did. You did mention that they came. Um, enslaved people were brought to Salem, either through South Carolina or through Virginia, uh, from Charleston and then up north. Um, that was one of the the questions that I am still researching. I don't see anything in the record that indicates that there was a um, any kind of slave market in Salem. So my question was, well, where did the Moravians go to enslave these people? Did they have to go to Charleston? Where, where did they have to go? How did they get these enslaved people back to Salem? But that's that's an open question for me. But John may have a, Dr. Sinbach may have a, a more refined answer. You know, we the records tell us, there. I mean, there are records of, slave sales in the Moravian archives, and there are about 30 of them in there. And they do tell of, in some cases, Moravians would go elsewhere and buy slaves. In other cases, um, because, because Wachovia was connected to commercial trading networks, both to the coast in South Carolina, as well as to Virginia and elsewhere, to Pennsylvania on the Great Wagon Road and other kinds of intersecting roads, the people were coming through all the time with all kinds of trade goods, including enslaved people, and they would be bought and sold there. Whether there was an actual slave market, I've never found any actual evidence to that, but 
but we have to we have to assume, especially by the 1830s and 40s, as the rules and regulations were changed in Salem, allowing the individual ownership of slaves there, that and as private owners began to buy more enslaved people, like Gottlieb Schober and others, Emanuel Schober, that uh, that there was some kind of market or place where they could get them. Yeah, because they were apparently readily available and and were being bought in fairly large numbers. So we have to, that is, I, to me, it's still an open question. Maybe Martha Hartley, who's out there, may have found some evidence of it that I haven't, but I would be interested in hearing more about it if anybody knows anything more about it. There's a great question uh, in the chat. Um, it says, is there evidence that the Moravian church had a moral problem uh, with the ownership of people? Um, whether they did or not, they apologized some years ago. The church, actually, the Moravian church apologized for having uh, enslaved people. Um, and we have to accept their apology as, as sincere, because there's no reason for us not to. But to directly answer your question, yes, there was an official church apology for the, for the behavior. Um, Michael, there's also another question, um, and this is really for, for both of you, both Michael and John, um, in the Q&A. Um, and for Michael, it's asking, um, Elizabeth Eager is asking, uh, what do we know about the production process for objects like the bell collar? Would they have been objects produced by enslaved persons? And in which case, how do we interpret the almost Baroque decorative qualities of such objects? Are they expressions of technical virtuosity, even though exercised on objects of oppression? Yes, definitely technical virtuosity. Um, and the irony of having an enslaved blacksmith, for example, produce collars that were going to be used that way. I don't have anything in my research that actually identifies a blacksmith, Moravian or otherwise, or Afro-Moravian Afro or otherwise, that produced these collars. Um, but we can imagine, you know, um, that they enslaved people worked in silversmiths, blacksmiths, potteries, um, uh, joiners, and coopers, and um, um, other other trades. So we have to assume that if they were just as frequent in their working in um, the blacksmith shop, then we can uh, we can presume assume rather that um, someone may have produced a collar like that. And then for uh, John, there's a similar question about the context of the speculum oris and the instrument maker. Um, and there's curiosity about what other kind of instruments someone who was making a speculum oris would have been making and the pseudoscientific and scientific practices that might have been influenced by that design and production. Yeah, that's a good question. I, I you know, I, I don't know specifically about, you know, the, the makers. Uh, I presume that there were a number of people doing that, um, you know, in, in England, um, you know, perhaps in the colonies as well. Um, but uh, you know, but I think that the the the, the question is is on target. You know, the scientific and pseudoscientific practices 
um, that, that seemed to be reflected in this apparent, you know, seemingly like a medical device, um, was actually used for much more nefarious purposes. Um, but it but it does remind us that this was slave trade was, you know, was going on during the age of the so-called Enlightenment, and that there was a connection between between so-called enlightened practices um, and as and the you know the, the the hierarchy of human beings that enlightened thinkers produced of Europeans at the top and Africans uh, at the bottom in terms of uh, said to be um, you know less intelligent and spiritual and physical and uh, intellectual endowments and which helped which helped justify the slave trade so there was a kind of pseudoscience behind the slave trade behind the enlightenment that helped to justify the slave trade in the first place. All these things came out at the same time, and there's a strong connection between the Enlightenment and the slave trade. Even though it's true, many enlightened thinkers later came out and denounced the slave trade, <laughs> there, there, was, there were many others who, who helped justify it through their, their so-called hierarchy of, of beings that they produced. Michael, do you have any thoughts on the pseudoscience aspects of yeah. it? Not necessarily related to the, the pseudoscience so much, um, but in terms of being able to interpret, or I should say reinterpret these objects and begin to bring in the implicated histories um, that are separate from the Moravian version of what may have happened that we know about. Um, and we look at African diaspora history, um, we see that without understanding these other histories, it sort of blocks our critical empathy for what enslaved people may have gone through. Uh, we get the impression that a lot of the decorative arts are just that, they're, they're, they're wonderful tables and chairs and, and cupboards and, and, uh, and, and we, don't, we don't have an appreciation or we need to develop appreciation for the trauma that these people had to go through in order to be forced to produce these objects. And so um, I think the takeaway for me as a visiting curator is to begin to sort of unearth these subjugated histories and use objects as sort of uh, primary material for um, developing new interpretations because that same spirit that we saw um, that's demonstrated by the speculum oris, right? People were ready to uh, die rather than be subjected to slavery. Or if we look at the Wachovia whip, uh, that means somebody was not doing what was required of them. They were trying to escape. They were trying to do something that was in opposition to slavery. So without understanding um, these embedded, encoded histories in these objects, we aren't able to appreciate um, what we're looking at when we go into Mesta, for example. And um, that's part of my goal uh, as visiting curator to sort of bring that history, as well as this conversation with uh, Dr. Sinsbach, to sort of get us thinking about two things at the same time, both the beauty of the object, but then the the torture and trauma associated with this production. 
that actually that segues into our next question, um, which talks about, you know, it asks what kind of strategies for display and interpretation are we considering as an organization? And um, would we consider allowing contemporary African-American artists and curators the opportunity to dramatically recontextualize or rethink the artifacts in ways that promote healing and broader cultural discourse? Well, I, I, <laughs> to sort of answer the question for Mesda, I would say yes. Yeah. That's one of the reasons um, that I was brought here as well as um, my, my co-curator, Samaya. Um, we are actually looking at the collection to do just that, to reinterpret and have this parallel history being told right alongside the traditional history, if you will. I think that that definitely shows up for me as well um, in my role as an education coordinator. You know, whenever we talk about our educational videos and the way that we use the resources at MESTA, um, I definitely think that we're trending that way as an organization. Um, so that that's a that's a great question, and I do think that it promotes a lot of thought. Um, John, do you have thoughts on that? Well, I, yeah, I think I think that's I think that's right, um, and I think the corollary there is 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 that it performs a function of trying to develop the what we need an archive an archive of knowledge, and we all talk about the Moravian archives and the richness of the. Moravian archives and the documentation, the written records that are in there, all written from the perspective of white Moravians. But you know, but but trying to read the read the archives. I mean, the, the the you know the phrase that historians always use is reading the archives against the grain. That is, trying to read um, against the grain of who's actually producing and writing the archives from the perspective of people who are being written about, not in their own voice. And, and there's plenty of opportunity to do that with the Moravian records to try to understand the lives of the enslaved people from their own perspective, but from the words written by white Germans um, about them. So I think that the, the, the visual record, the, the material culture record is an important tool. The archeological record as Leland Ferguson's excavations have, have illustrated, um, can be valuable tools for trying to build up different kinds of archives to try to understand the lives of people we're trying to trying to explore from their own perspective, even if we don't have their words. We might have an object that they produced. We might have something that they left in the ground and that, that an archaeologist can excavate and try mm -hmm. to find and interpret. So yeah, I think I think it all feeds into the same wellspring of of um, trying to build our build our knowledge base about about these people mm -hmm. someone noted in the comments that I thought, I thought was an interesting point it's just a statement um, that the focused discussion of prolonged and traumatic torture on middle on the middle passage and in old salem helps to explain how black moravians can readily identify with the sufferings of jesus yeah yeah um, i think that's i think that's true um, there's a there's a, to put it into a different context, there's a, a recent book several years ago by a well-known scholar of African-American religion, James Cone, called The Cross and the Lynching Tree, that makes that connection, that, that establishes a connection between, you know, physical brutality and, and 
the, the suffering servant of, of Jesus as the redemptive figure. And, and that was clearly true in throughout much of this history that we're talking about. And, uh, and, and yeah, yeah, it, it made, it helps. It was the thing that helped make Christianity comprehensible and palatable. Uh, after all, this was a religion that sanctioned their enslavement. And, and yet somehow enslaved people adopted this religion and made it their own and claimed it and, and tried to redeem it and, and make it whole and, and tried, to, tried to hold it true to its own promises that Christianity was a, a religion of, of freedom. And I think the sufferings of Jesus, as Peter illustrates, are, are deeply tied to the trauma and sufferings that enslaved people themselves endured. And I think another thing um, to look at in terms of why enslaved people would would have accepted Christianity, particularly Moravian version, was number one, um, there was an offer of literacy. That was one of the draws of, of accepting. I don't know, I wouldn't say it wasn't the only draw. It could have been, in fact, you know, the basis and the tenets of the religion, but the practical um, reasons were they got literacy for it. And secondly, they were, I shouldn't say totally protected, I should say quasi-protected from um, other people abusing them because they had recourse to the church. The, the church would sort of give them some kind of blanket protection given the fact that they were part of, um, let's say the single brothers choir or whatever. Um, but there were alternate reasons other than this notion of, of, uh, of spiritual redemption, right? There was about the practice of liberation. How do, how do we use this to get to what we're trying to get to? If they're going to teach us a trade, let's take the trade and let's turn that trade into something that's part of our practice of freedom. Um, so this notion that, you know, enslaved Black people just accepted um, um, this Moravian religion because they were, um, it was all about spirituality. There was another dimension as well that was at play. Yeah, I agree with that, yeah. Our final question, um, which I think is a great one. Um, Peter Wood asks, could you speak more about the effect of these objects on generations of white users? Can they help us understand the deep background of unending white supremacist violence spreading from the South across the wider American culture? <laughs> um, <laughs> in, many, in many ways, the, the South is the, the epicenter uh, of American apartheid, and it has been, you know, for over 400 years. And so um, I think a lot of the same spirit that we see animated um, in these enslaved Afro-Moravians um, is present and active um, in a lot of the American cities today because it's really about, in, in the final analysis, um, whether, whether you're a Hebrew enslaved uh, in Egypt or whether you're protesting in the streets today, that same 
desire, that human desire for freedom and self-determination is something that is trans-historical. So I think, depending upon the context, like if you talk about Old Salem, there was a, a resistance there. If you talk about ancient Egypt, there was a resistance there. So it's different context for resistance, but that same spirit is 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 what's animating. And I think that's, for me, that's a takeaway from this um, conversation. Whenever there's oppression, uh, wherever you see oppression, always look for resistance. And that sort of will tell a broader story. Yeah, and I think that one answer that comes to mind, it would be just that, uh, you know, our current discussions about um, the, the carceral state, the, you know, the disproportionate numbers of, of people of color in, in prison today. I mean, we look at the plantation system as the direct forebear of that. Um, the need to, to keep a subject population down through violence, punishment, torture, uh, is you see that, of course, carry on through Reconstruction, through lynching and into the Jim Crow era and, 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 and beyond, and, and the modern carceral stay is very much a product of that. And, and I, you know, the, the culture of violence that is required to keep that population uh, subdued uh, seems to have a, a multi-generational longevity to it. Mm -hmm. I agree with that. But on the other hand, you know, the corollary too is, is that, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement nowadays had its, had its parallels in the 18th century too, through, through resistance, through the abolition movement, through rebellions um, that they didn't call it the Black Lives Matter movement, that they, but they called it um, trying to become free, trying to gain freedom through whatever means, through escape, through, through, through religion, whatever it was, that everybody who did, who, who lived their life essentially was part of this larger Black Lives Matter movement in the period that we're talking about, the 18th and 19th centuries. Um, and that too is a, is a legacy of, of this long multi-generational freedom struggle that continues. So Dr. Sinsbach, um, as, as people, listen to this conversation, um, clearly they're asking questions about, uh, about deep issues. Um, what, 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 what do we take away from this? I mean, how is, how is talking about a, a speculum oris and a Wachovia whip? I mean, what relevance do you see this having um, in this contemporary moment? And what, what would be the takeaway for you well, the takeaway for me, I think, is twofold. One is that that when we talk about what to the the Moravian community, um, that uh, you know that this is a, a complicated community of of um, people brought together under different circumstances, and uh, it was a multiracial community, uh, a hierarchical, unequal community that was built. In, in some measure, some large measure, on the enforced servitude of a certain group of people. So, yeah, the, the, the whip that you're talking about um, is, is part of that culture. The speculum oris, <coughs> even though Moravians themselves may not have known about it, 
and may not have known much about the, the slave trade itself, that they benefited from it. They enriched themselves from it. Mm-hmm. So there is that, that legacy. Um, but on the other hand, the, the legacy of <clears throat> African resistance, mm-hmm. uh, a desire and determination, excuse me, <clears throat> to become free or at least to maintain a sense of um, um, autonomy or, or, or um, an idea of selfhood, that is a long-running theme through this history as well that, that we see playing out into our present day. So again, Black Lives Matter movement, um, I mean, the, the, same, the same strains of, of oppression and resistance carry on 300 years later. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, it's a, it's, you know, persistent strain in American history. And, you know, how long is it going to keep going? What, what, are the, what are the tools that we need to dismantle um, the white supremacist culture that we still have inherited? Um, the struggle seems to, to be going on. Well, I'll tell you, I'll just make um, one um, declaration as, as, we, as we close. Um, I'll make a speech act. Um, as of tonight, there isn't any more white supremacy. So it stopped tonight. Now, if it continues on, Interesting. Could you walk through that a little bit more, Michael? Well, I'm I'm declaring through a speech act. Speech act is a performative act through words, and I can declare that it no longer exists. Now, if someone wants to challenge me with that, then they will have to reproduce it again. But as of tonight, it's it's done. That's beautiful. Thank you. Thank you. No. Thank you both. Um, yeah. So again, um, as we do close, thank you both for your time um, and sharing, you know, the unexpected connections between these two things and their significance, you know, both in that time period and in their um, relevance to the world today. Um, there will be people that have, uh, you know, the desire to deepen their knowledge. So we do want to leave a few resources for you to explore on your own. Um, as we mentioned before, uh, Dr. John Sinsbach has written two volumes, a separate Canaan, the making of an Afro-Moravian world in North Carolina in 1763 to 1840, as well as Rebecca's revival, creating black Christianity in the Atlantic world. Both are available for purchase. Um, a separate Canaan can be purchased through the University of North Carolina Press and Rebecca's revival through the Harvard University Press. Um, Michael also has scholarship available. His work, The Potter's Field, Trauma and Representation in the Art of David Drake, is one of a collection of essays available in Where Is All My Relation? The Poetics of Dave the Potter, edited by Michael A. Cheney and purchasable through the Oxford University Press. If you enjoyed this conversation about things, we do have a podcast um, called Things, A Global Conversation, where you're welcome to join us in person for future conversations. Um, you can learn more about us at oldsalem.org slash things. And remember, your gift is what enabled, enables us to continue drawing these connections between things and bringing those conversations to you. Thank you all and have a wonderful evening.